Welcome on board another exciting adventure on Talking Space. I'm Gene McCulkey, and I'm here with two of our usual suspects, Miss Cassie Tamanini. How you doing? Doing quite well. Glad to be back on the air, back to our usual show. Yeah. And, but uh, our last episode was so great. I'm so glad we did that one. <laughs> yeah, that makes two of us, actually. And the mastermind behind that last episode, Kat Robinson, how you doing? I'm doing well. I know. It was such a fun episode, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, it, for, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, go ahead, take a look at the episode next to this episode, 803. It was a little bit of a departure from what we usually do here, but gosh darn it, Danielle was a magnificent guest, and I'm not going to go ahead and spoil the surprise, so if you're new to this show over here and you're listening to us for the first time, go ahead and I urge you to download episode 803, which was just an absolutely fascinating, uh, fascinating show. Uh, Mark Raderman's not here with us tonight. His first robotics crew has gone ahead and captured second place, so he is working diligently with a team of high schoolers. And again, Mark, way to go. I'm looking forward to seeing your team on the next step. And Sawyer is dealing with some stuff tonight, so he's sitting this one out. So uh, Sawyer, we'll see you next week. But let's go ahead and move on because it's been a rather busy couple of weeks and we're just trying to dust ourselves off and get into a little bit of all this. First, we had a Soyuz launch, which brought the uh, ISS back to a full complement. Uh, up until that point, anyway, uh, the commander, uh, Tim Coper, was up there with ESA astronaut Tim Peake. Then one of the contingent from Russia, Yuri Malinchikhenko. I, I, I screw up Russian names there. I just slapped my hand. But they were just joined with three other new astronauts here, uh, including astronaut Jeff Williams. Jeff is destined, by the way, to break Scott Kelly's record of consecutive days in space. So as Scott himself said after return, records were made to be broken, and Jeff Williams is about ready to break his. Now, this isn't a one-year mission. It's a six-month increment as normal. But because of Jeff's previous time on the ISS, he's going to be the record holder. So one of the really cool things I noticed, too, each one of these launches have a talisman or some sort to indicate zero gravity. And this one carried this little pink owl that was the small little stuffed owl that one of the uh, cosmonauts' daughters had. And it was just kind of neat to see once you hit zero to G, this little stuffed pink owl flying around. But anyway, so that was the launch there. Another thing that happened, too, almost around the same time was that the Russians released their own 10-year budget for spaceflight for the next 10 years. It is equal to about 1.4 trillion rubles, which basically passes is the equivalent of $20 billion United States over the next decade. Now, and here we are quibbling about NASA getting $19 billion. This is $20 billion over a decade. <laughs> so this really, really kind of tells yeah, the you... Close the Go closeness ahead. in those numbers really highlights the difference, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
according to this article I'm looking at here from the Moscow Times, it is dated, let me scroll up, March 17th. Apparently there were some delays in getting this budget approved and so on. Boy, that sounds familiar. But Dmitry Medvedev, he's the Russian prime minister, he was saying that this is such a large program, but we need such large programs even under the current economic circumstances. But and if, does that, if that rings a bell here too, because we're kind of sort of looking at the same problems here, but they were very, very short on details in what really comprises this budget. And Russia has a tendency to kind of say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the other thing. And in reality, when you look at what they've got, you have to scratch your head and say, yeah, how are you going to pay for it? So, And also just to keep in mind, when comparing Russia's budget versus NASA's budget, is that NASA does a vast array of things. Russia doesn't really have the uh, varied space portfolio that NASA has. Right, that's absolutely correct. But what scares me a little bit, though, is I'm wondering, too, if their bean counters have taken into account the commercial crew program. If you know what I'm trying to say, because right now we're paying about $80 million a seat on Soyuz. And once both CST-100 Starliner and Crew Dragon start flying, which I hope will be around you know, the 2018 time frame, that's going to eat into those opportunities. So I'm wondering anywhere between now and then if we're going to really, really see that $80 million a seat number kind of creep up a little bit just to try to tweak some more money out of NASA. So it's, it's just going to be something to watch. They have been creeping up with every contract we've made with them. Oh, yeah. I mean, it started <laughs> um, out as until, until there is outright competition that's actively flying, I think we're going to continue to see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it started out at 60. So caveat emptor. <laughs> you know? they're, and, and they're the Supply only Supply and demand, baby. Yeah. They, and boy, did we teach them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it has been going up, and it kind of makes me wonder what else is going to be going up, too. Is the price also of the dreaded RD-180 going to go up? We'll get to that a little later, but and the RD-191 that's going to be powering Antares, and so on and so forth. So, it, it, again, it, it's it's just something that bears watching. So it's good to, to go ahead and kind of look at all this big picture-wise and say, hey, okay, fine, how does it impact other areas? But the other interesting thing, too... I kind of alluded to is they've got a lot of grandiose plans and they've kind of have a history of over promising and eventually under delivering and they're not telling us what's in this thing so my guess is is just going to be continued ISS operations and that will really be about it so speaking of budgets Mr. Charles Bolden who is the current uh, administrator of NASA went ahead and did his little swan song routine through Congress these past couple of weeks. The first, I believe, uh, one of those trips were to the Senate, and another one was a trip through Congress to go ahead and discuss the uh, 2017 budget request for NASA. And not only was this Mr. Bolden's swan song, this was also a little bit of a swan song, too, for a very, very good friend of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration in the Senate, and that was Senator Barbara McCluskey. I usually don't agree with her in a lot of things politically, but she has been one heck of a champion for NASA in huge ways, and not only just for her district. She's really been been in there because, of course, she represents Maryland, and, of course, the Goddard Space Flight Center is in Maryland. But without her, there would have been a lot of key programs that did not really happen. 
She was the biggest individual out there that was trying to go ahead and get Hubble repaired when the spherical aberration issue was located. She was a huge champion to make New Horizons work and get that moving. She gave some very good commentary and very good applause to the scientists when I was there over at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory for the flyby. Without her, I don't think STS-125, the final Hubble repair mission, would have happened at all. But thanks to her and the intervention of her and Mike Griffin, they kind of worked things out to make sure that that happened. And those are just simply the highlights that are coming to my mind. This was an incredible career for Barbara. And I'm wondering, if you care to speculate anybody, what we're going to see if we're going to see such a champion like that in the Senate to replace her. I'm not sure we are. I don't know if there's somebody posed to become that sort of lion. Honestly, I, I think that there's a lack of people like McCluskey in Congress these days. Her way of fighting for whatever cause she believed in and her way of working across the aisle is something that's missing in Congress these days. She's one of the last of the people who who do a good job at bringing together coalitions from both sides of the aisle. That's becoming harder and harder to do for many, many reasons. And so I think it's going to be really hard for somebody to do the same things that she did. That said, there's always somebody new and exciting coming up. There always is. And I I look forward to seeing who's just beyond the bend because, frankly, we need someone like that. We need lots of those, preferably. And so it's a really, really big loss. But... I don't know. I mean, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and all that. <laughs> Hopefully we'll find somebody who can fill that place. Yeah, I'm with you, Cassie. I don't really see anyone who immediately jumps to mind as this will be the, the next champion for NASA on budget committees. <coughs> I do think that this is going to be a really interesting question in the fall because thanks to current presidential politics, um, oh boy! The Senate might be much more open, openly contested than we thought earlier this year. There are some real opportunities in competitive races that we could see a change of hands, of control of either the House or the Senate, and we've seen some attempts to cut funding for earth science and climate science. If we if we get a change of hands of control, we might see that. That differ, so that could open opportunities for people to become more vocal and become more of stepping in to fill the shoes that will definitely feel a little empty there. But yeah, I'm with you. There's really just not anyone who who just leaps off the plate as this person unless, you know, hey, maybe one of the recently retired astronauts will run for office and then I'm sure we'll see some <laughs> some uh, some <laughs> championing there. So if any of you are listening <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, Scott Kelly just announced that he's retiring on April 1st, which I just find incredibly amusing. But <laughs> yes. His brother, Marcus, has been quite politically active with gun control issues. So maybe. And of course, his sister-in-law, he has all the connections in the world. Exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. All the connections. So maybe uh, moving from a space dynasty to a political dynasty. Yeah, to kind of interject something a little bit, the only other individual I can think of is on the Appropriations Committee currently, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Culbertson. 
he's he's been really really trying to go ahead and succeed in getting NASA some funds and has been really really pushing the Europa mission like you know there's no tomorrow plus he when he was talking to General Bolden uh, I believe it was at one of the hearings where Administrator Bolden testified he was trying to say look this program's been nickel and dimed basically for years and you know, quite frankly he was tired of it so he was going to try you know everything that he possibly could to try to make sure that NASA got what they needed to continue their missions so there are other individuals that are dedicated to NASA's mission in Congress so let's Keep our fingers crossed and hopefully that the right players get together and step up and are really, really going to try to do something. But as you said there, Kat, that we do have an election coming up this November. It's going to be an interesting one, to say the very least. It's yeah. going to be? I think it already is. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, was trying to, I was trying to be polite. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think polite is the word of this election. <laughs> Actually, yeah, interesting is the polite word to describe this election. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have other, I, I have other words for it, but we're not going to go there. Um, but the the fact that um, you know, it's it's really easy to for people to get lost in the presidential politics and forget just how many seats are up for grabs up on the hill, and how important those races are in both the primary and general phases so a little reminder to people once again try and find out what your candidates think about space <laughs> before well, you go you to cast your ballots right now yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yep Kat and I were actually looking at an email today that I uh, got years ago from Senator Frank Lautenberg and uh, you, know, you, you know, remember the story <laughs> so well I got multiple letters from him, but this one particular one was funny. And they do pay attention to these things you write in, and they do want you to know where they stand on the issues. And if they don't talk about your issue, well, then you bug them about it, you know? Don't just sit back and let the media never ask your question. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree. And without more, I am um, doing a little bit of research in a pilot study right now for some research I might do later. So I've been talking to Cassie and people like her who write their elected officials about about NASA and NASA's funding. So it is important. I can definitely echo and and agree with Cassie there. You know, it, it's election season. So when you cast your vote, if NASA's funding is important to you, make sure that you investigate your candidates' positions on NASA and funding NASA before you cast that vote. Yep. And as a late radio commentator here in the New York area, Bob Grant used to say, your influence counts. Use it. So, again, as Cassie said, try to see where your, your favorite candidate stands on space issues and vote accordingly. Speaking of swan songs, we've got another swan song coming up oh, tomorrow night at 11.05 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The Cygnus OA-6 mission is going to go ahead and leave the launch pad from Launch Complex 41 out at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. This is really, really unprecedented because OA-4, which was the last Cygnus mission, just really, really finished up the beginning of this month. It just re-entered. And here's the team again teaming up with the United Launch Alliance on an Atlas V. And they will be launching, I believe, this particular Cygnus is going to carry the largest payload over seven tons of cargo up to the International Space Station. And some really interesting science that is going to be flying on this one. One, though, has just been thrown around the press 
and and I, I I I'm starting to cringe every time I hear this saying, "Oh, NASA's going to go ahead and set a spacecraft on fire." No, NASA's not setting a spacecraft on fire, boys and girls, but they are going to go ahead and do a experiment uh, called Sapphire that will go ahead and examine how fire spreads in a spacecraft in microgravity conditions. This is a controlled burn in a small box, which is, uh, I think, um, the dimensions, if I'm looking at this, and I'm going to use metric here because that, that's the only thing in front of me, the dimensions of the box itself are about 53 by 90 by 133 centimeters, which really, you know, it, it's it's not all that big. In fact, I was watching the pre-launch press briefing today for science, and the gentleman that, I guess the, he's the uh, the PM or the principal investigator, the PI on, on this thing, he was able to carry this thing out and grab it by the hand and hold it and have no real issue with it. But what they're going to try to do with Sapphire is, uh, Cassie, I'm still in your thunder, gosh darn it. Go ahead. You know more about this experiment than I do. So <laughs> why don't you go ahead and fire away? Actually, I don't know if I'd so much say that I know more about it. I happened to uh, catch an article in TechCrunch about it the other day, mm -hmm. which, of course, had a headline that would drive you bananas, Gene, <laughs> about why is NASA setting a spacecraft on fire or something like that. <sighs> but, of course, you know, the reality is that it's going to be a controlled fire, <laughs> and they're looking at – it's actually one of a series of experiments they're going to do, not just one experiment, but this is the first one to experiment with how fire behaves on space and the really the implication is we've been really lucky to not have a fire on a spacecraft that has caused problems in a very very long time obviously apollo one was a huge surprise at the time and so they haven't had great ways to do a controlled experiment like this you obviously can't do it on the iss <laughs> you can't risk anyone's life so doing it inside a spacecraft that is about to basically burn up entering the atmosphere anyway is the perfect place because if something does go wrong, well, it's really not a problem. Yeah, but I think one of the other other things, too, they were mentioning, the reason why they're not doing it on board ISS is really there isn't any room because the, this experiment was custom-made specifically for the environment that Cygnus provides as well, and there just really wasn't a lot of room. There, you really couldn't go ahead and build a rack to, to hold this experiment in. Well, and this Safely. is just, this is such a better option. I mean, really, why why risk why risk it in the ISS? I mean, let's if you look at it from every single angle. I mean, you have the risk to human life. You have the risk to such an expensive thing that cannot be replaced. It's it makes so much more sense to do it this way. So um, I see the logic. Yep. It was originally going to be thrown on board, I believe, if I, if I recall reading some of the background on it exactly, and this was off of the NASA website. I'll have to go ahead and find the link and put it in the show notes. But they were looking at this as far back as uh, about five years ago, and they were actually mm -hmm. thinking about putting this on the last ATV, and unfortunately, they just couldn't get the experiment ready in time. And they said, well, why don't we choose Cygnus? Because Cygnus just seemed to be a very good uh, platform for this. So they went ahead and grabbed it, and lo and behold, they got it in there. And there was some mention about this as early as the, good Lord, as the Antares A1 flight, which was basically the first flight of Antares. I remember talking with some of the press folks, the PAO folks over there about this experiment. And I just, we were, because I asked in passing, 
about Cygnus, and it just seemed to be a really, really good platform for doing other things. And that's when I learned about this experiment. So we just got some little details about it, just some little tidbits of information. But anyway, what the experiment will do is go ahead, after Cygnus departs from the International Space Station, it will fly out to a you know, reasonably good distance, and the controllers over at, I believe, the experiment is being controlled from the NASA Glenn Research Center. And I believe they will go ahead, they'll activate the experiment. It will go ahead and burn this material inside this box for about maybe, I think that they're hoping for about maybe two, two and a half hours worth of data. And it will study not only how the fire burns, and there'll be a camera that will be watching this, but it'll also see what constituent gases fill in the box and so on and so forth. So then this way they could try to go ahead and, and build better and safer spacecraft going forward. So yeah, this is the Sapphire is going to be a really, really interesting experiment. One of the other, other experiments that I thought was kind of interesting was the infamous Gecko Gripper. And I will go ahead and read this directly from the NASA website here. The Gecko Gripper investigation tests a gecko-like adhesive gripping device that can stick on on command in the harsh environment of space. Essentially what they're hoping to do is outfit this little grip system. And as the name implies, it really, really tries to mimic what a gecko does and how a uh, gecko's feet operate and so on. And the idea is to go ahead and make small little microbots using this material and have these microbots run around and try to inspect your outdoor spacecraft while you're traveling for micrometeorite impacts or anything like that or any damage that might be out there to go ahead and alert you. So it's it's not, you know, again, this is part of the whole journey to Mars scenario. Really a fascinating experiment. I also understand, too, that Cygnus itself will be releasing some microsats as well. I'm trying to remember the exact number. I do not have that in front of me, but I will get that for next time when we discuss Cygnus further a after the launch and some of the other science that are going on this thing. But these are two of the experiments that just pop out of my head. I'm really hoping... That the gecko gripper totally results in some shoes I can use to walk up walls. Cat, funny you should say that. <laughs> because. <laughs> and I'm not joking. This is what was said during the, the science briefing. And I caught this just before I had to run off to a meeting. The gentleman that was giving the presentation basically said that you could see the gecko gripper. He saw consumer applications for the gecko gripper. He basically said you could probably hang up pictures or paintings up on walls with this stuff or even flat panel televisions. You go ahead, pick it up, remove the adhesive from the wall. You don't like the picture there, just put the adhesive back on, put the picture back up, boom, you're done. So It's like command hooks on steroids. Pretty much, yeah. And you don't have, <laughs> and, and and he was saying you don't have to go ahead and do any, you know, pounding for any sinks or, or make sure you don't find any other issues behind the wall or anything like that this it basically wipes that all out so you might be hanging your pictures and uh your flat panel televisions using I'm this device hang myself from <laughs> fancy shoes just having visions of like walking I... up and hanging upside down from the ceiling <laughs> just think it'd be so fun well, yeah, I ha I have a feeling that that's going to be tried as soon as possibly possible right? by someone. Right? 
Yeah, there's no way you're the only person thinking this. <laughs> I just, like, get myself some high top shoes so I can lace them up really good, walk up my wall, get to my ceiling, and just hang out upside down. <laughs> I guess it's my, it's the, the chimpanzee. Our last common ancestor is speaking through me with my ability or my desire to hang up, hang upside down. <laughs> Oh boy! Well, on that happy note, <laughs> I'm still I, I'm actually still picturing uh, you know being a kid of the '60s. I still I'm still picturing the old Batman. If anybody out there remembers the old Batman series from the 1960s, and it always featured the dynamic duo going up a building, you know, climbing up a building and and trying to see. You know, oh yeah, always. Was, yeah, and, and there was always some celebrity, you know, interrupting them and rude up, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see if comic book and or evolutionary fantasies come to fruition. <laughs> we will see indeed. Okay, so, Kat, something that we've talked about here on the program on and off is the idea that current ESA chairman had, and he sort of championed that at IAC last year, was a lunar village. Basically, trying to go ahead and He's use. I'm going to talk about it soon too. At um, I think GLIS. Not exactly sure if that's the correct conference, but mm-hmm. I know in May he's giving a a whole session about his Moon Village idea. Right. That'd be interesting to go ahead and mark down on the calendar too to see if we can find any more information and kind of follow up on that. But NASA's Chris McKay, a astrobiologist, had a interesting little thought here to, to share with everyone and he was saying that a potential lunar base could only cost about 10 billion dollars which is less than the price of an aircraft carrier and it could be done by 2022 cassie you've done a lot of homework on this one so yeah why don't you go ahead because, and take us uh, by the hand as- and show us as our listeners probably know by now, I'm pretty obsessed with going back to the moon. And um, and actually, really, this it seems this whole issue of New Space Journal is really focused on the case for the moon. It's not just this Chris McKay article. What makes his article particularly interesting is he actually cites a number of other papers and articles about how we can use a lot of technology that's being created on Earth right now or has been recently created to actually build a lunar colony, which greatly reduces the cost of doing this. Instead of having to design all new things, we can actually use stuff that is currently in use on Earth and use, you know, such as robotics, self-driving cars. We can use these to actually create a space on the moon. The technology is there. And part of the idea is that they can use, for example, Bigelow's inflatable habitats, and they can send a big ship of robots and inflatable spacecraft um, or inflatable buildings for this colony. And the robots can start the process and can have it basically all inflated and ready to go. And then you send the astronauts to come live there. And it would actually be a crew of 10. That's what could be supported. And so it would be probably split half and half between people who are making the place run and then half 
mostly graduate researchers doing their research. The idea is it'd be like a McMurdo on the moon, which is actually something that we were talking about on this very show last time we talked about this topic was how we should have a McMurdo on the moon. <laughs> and that's exactly what Chris McKay is talking about here. A very small, this isn't as big as the Issa moon village idea from what I gather. They're, they're looking to be a little bigger, but this does have the ability to be done and to be done at, okay, it's hard to call $10 billion low cost, but for this, it's a very low cost. And since it's all relying on technology that's either available or will be available within the next two to three years, it's very much within reach. It's not all this new stuff that we keep getting told that we need all these new designs if we went back to the moon. And that's part of why it's too cost prohibitive. But if you you take, according to Chris McKay, if you take the budget issue out of the equation if you make it a low cost enough mission then all of a sudden it's not derailing any plans to go to mars it's not eating into that budget it's actually going to be part of the journey to mars or it could be part of the journey to mars instead of In a fact, hindrance. It, could, it could enhance those plans mm-hmm. well not only that some of the plans that i've that i've seen in the past already have that component to it where things are robotically already kind of laid out for the crew as they're en route. So this Mm -hmm. basically tests that whole concept of testing all of all of the materials that you're going to need to get to Mars to go, you know, to, to go to the moon, which is something that this very panel has been arguing for the past, what, year? Yes. I mean, that's the thing. Don't you want like total proof of concept of if we're going to send like a group of robots to build a village? (laughs) Like, I don't know. I would like some proof of concept a little bit closer. (laughs) Well, that that was the argument. Right, exactly. That's the argument, you know, again, this panel is made. And I've said this several times. We might almost be too much in agreement on this. I mean, that's like how much this show, like how much everybody involved in this show seems to generally agree on this. Yeah. We might almost be too much in agreement. We we almost need somebody to play devil's advocate for us because we love the moon. We think this is a great idea to go back. But this, when you look at this, when you look at these kinds of numbers, there's no good argument against it anymore. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, I'll mention real fast, SpaceX is supposed to launch their next cargo vehicle. I believe it's April 8th, they announced. And I believe that spacecraft is carrying the BEAM experiment, and that's the uh, inflatable habitat experiment that Bigelow wants to send up and launch, too. So we'll have to see how that all goes with the inflatable habitat on the ISS, because that's going to be a, it's a demonstrator to see if that's all going to work. And if it works, and Mm. works real well, then hold on. I think, I think that's, that is really, really going to be something. And by the way, the the, the implications are going to be enormous if that works. Right, exactly. And just, just as an aside, this was technology, unfortunately, NASA was forced to shut down on its own because it too was looking at an inflatable system at one Mm -hmm. point. And unfortunately, due to budget cuts, they had to just let the research kind of languish. And Bigelow kind of picked up the ball and ran with it. So that's going to be interesting to watch to see how this all works. But Cassie, again, as as, as this speaking team is, of go ahead. well, that's the thing. Like speaking of new space companies and everything, part of the 
tabulation for this would actually involves using Falcon 9s um, and Falcon 9 Heavy as vehicles for car- both cargo and astronauts to the moon. That's part of his accounting. And so this is a very new, this is a possibility very much created by new space, according to Chris McKay. Well, as far as Falcon Heavy is concerned, it's supposed to launch at the end of this year. If I remember mm-hmm. exactly, the initial launch date for Falcon Heavy was actually supposed to be the end of 2012 out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. So I'm not I'm and and the way SpaceX has been <laughs> has been launching of late, they have a full plate this year of about maybe 18 launches scheduled, and mm-hmm. they've only had how many this year that have successfully gone. You see my point? <laughs> yeah. No, so absolutely. I, but, but, you know, it's, it's not just – he did these calculations using those, right? Right. But it's not even just about those vehicles. It's about the fact that when – as that thing gets going and as more and more of these spacecraft become more and more reliable and certified for more things and everything – it's creating more and more competition. That's going to just keep driving down costs across the board. So it's a net positive thing. And it's the kind of thing that's it. going, yeah, it's the kind of thing that's going to make the moon feasible regardless of Mars. And that's an important distinction. Go ahead, Kat. You, you wanted to add something. Oh, I was just saying this. We've said this several times on the show for quite a while, as long as I've been on. That competition is a good thing. Competition is is what we need in the industry, uh, especially when it comes to, to things that are closer to Earth. That competition only makes it more feasible for programs like commercial crew and commercial cargo that free the resources for NASA to focus on what it should be doing, which is exploring and discovering. And the other thing, too, and Cassie, you pointed this out, is that the moon is about three days out. If you run into a serious problem, you're three days away from a burger and your favorite malt beverage. If you have an issue en route to Mars that you haven't figured out yet and you're four months away, Earth is a nice little blue dot in the rearview mirror. Uh, You can't turn around at that point. So you want to make sure you've got all your I's dotted, your T's crossed before you go ahead and make that run. And I think having the lunar base there, and I, I just don't see... The negative of this, everybody kind of thinks that the moon just might be a temporary stop, and not just a temporary stop, I'm sorry, basically be a, an end game. And that's why they don't right. want to touch the moon. It's going to go, you know, why, you know, well, you got the lunar base, why should we do anything else? Well, no, the base is there to try to test the technologies we are going to need to go to Mars and make that shot. Well, and. And, you know, this particular idea that's being written about here, where they're talking about 10 people on the moon, that nobody living there full time would be rotated crews, much like the ISS. They're envisioning about three crew changes a year. And, you know, like I said, it'd be graduate students doing research and people like that. So it's not, this is not any form of end game sort of plan, you know, this is, like I said, the comparison is to McMurdo, which, you know, (laughs) we don't feel like we need to stop exploring earth because we have a base at McMurdo, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like it's our drive. Our drive is to go further. Always, always. That's part of being human. That's part of why we're all over our own planet, let alone off of it. Exactly. And to me, I know I'm preaching to the chorus here here, uh, as far as uh, the current uh, folks on the panel, 
but I just don't see how the moon would be a dead end. Cassie, you pointed out, too, that you're going to have student researchers possibly going to the lunar surface to do geology. So picture that in your doctoral you resume know, there. Just, just, just I saying. Keep, I keep coming back to this of the dozen people who walked on the moon. They had each had so little time. They had so little chance to really do that much science like i mean they took pictures they brought back rocks there were there were great things done don't get me wrong don't think i'm putting down apollo i'm just saying the idea of having young hungry researchers up on the moon exploring around i don't understand how anybody can claim that there is no scientific merit to being on the moon that we already know all about it i mean we're still learning from the rocks that came back so we haven't finished learning from apollo let alone finished learning from the moon where we barely spent any time well that's just it i mean if you take a look at, look at what we've explored on the moon it's really the equivalent distance of dare i say this of parsippany new jersey which is really about maybe <laughs> yeah. 20 which is about maybe 25 miles <laughs> so every time i every time i hear somebody say oh the moon is your daddy's space program or been there done that we haven't scratched the surface that's like saying to a foreign individual that that's come over here from europe that wanted to see the united states to say yes i have seen america and you've only seen elizabeth new jersey i mean let's be serious yeah I don't care if we've been to the moon. My generation hasn't been to the moon. And it's still really fascinating, and we still have to study it. And I think it's really ridiculous to just ignore all the moon has to offer, not only on its own research potential just for what's going on there. Lots of people have talked about, what about an observatory on the dark side of the moon where we could get really amazing things? And then also, as as you've pointed out, Cassie, and as you've pointed out, Jean, it makes perfect sense. And we've all said this on the show a million times, it feels like the moon is the perfect test bed for future exploration. So why shouldn't we have a permanent, you know, like Issa is advocating for a permanent settlement on the moon or what Chris McKay is talking about, a place where for a really not expensive price tag, when you think about it in terms of exploration, that we can have research happening on the moon. It's just, it's ridiculous and stupid to ignore it. And, you know, it's... Also, Chris McKay points out in the same article that there are other countries that are going to go to the moon with or without us. And so even if you just are coming from it from like a national security standpoint, like we have policies regarding the moon and treaties and and everything in place. But the reality is, if we're not on the surface of the moon, when somebody else starts to settle the moon, that's going to have major implications politically as well. So from every standpoint, there are good reasons to make a push to be the first ones there or to be part of the first ones there to make sure that the first people who are there in some sort of permanent capacity, that we're, we have representatives involved, that we're part of it, that we don't just cede this to other countries, because that's what we do. No, absolutely. You're right. You're right, Cassie. And I just got this wonderful comic image in my head of Team America Universe Police. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Which, to be clear, I am not advocating that America should be in charge of anything. (laughs) (laughs) I can completely picture the movie poster for that now. (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, 
I mean, it, it is a good point about national security and about, I mean, hey, you know, in a way, the moon's ours, you know, like we, we were the first plan of flag there. Do we really, really want to give that up? Do we want that bit of personal, like, or, you know, national, I should say, bit of glory to become just a flag sitting there while other people have researchers sitting there, you know, yeah, and do, walking? Do, wanna be a, do we want to be a monument or do we want to be part of the movement? Exactly. I oh, couldn't have said that better. <laughs> I could not have said that any better. Uh, final thoughts then, uh, as far as this whole thing. Is this going to be a dead end, or is this really, really something that the United States should really take a look at as part of the, quote, journey to Mars that I was reminded of saying, shh, we're not going to the moon, we're going to Mars of today, which was I, by, by Mr. Eric I mean, I really think it comes down to the fact that if, if we want to continue to be part of the international space community, we're going to have to be involved in, in anything that's going on in the moon, as well as going to the journey to Mars. Just like we need the international community to go to Mars, the international community needs us to go to the moon. And and I also believe, too, that this is something that the international community sees as something that we can do now, not in 2030, but now, if we put our minds to it and all of our resources together. And I think that's why the current ESA chairman is sort of becoming a huge cheerleader for that. People like to support programs that are doing things, and people will support a program that they see progress in. And I think, too, the journey to Mars, as much as I really want to see it happen, I think 2030 is too far out for people to go ahead and comprehend. However... You know, they, they compare it to the whole like timeline of Apollo, which is obviously, to those of us in the know, a ridiculous thing. But the average person doesn't understand the difference between going to the moon and going to Mars. They really don't. And, and, and Neither does Elon like, Musk, but that's another story. You know, huh? Neither does Elon Musk, but that's another story. <laughs> But go ahead. But, you know, as far as public support and stuff, I mean, yeah. I mean, 2030, like, people, like, have no concept of when that is. I mean, it's so far off. And and so, you know, <laughs> it's a wonderful thing that we made it to the moon so quickly after Kennedy made his speech. But it also did create this misperception, in a way, to the public that we might be able to do other things in that same manner and mars is so much more difficult than the moon so much more difficult and it's really hard to convey that to people without making it sound like we're never going to do it it's hard to make it sound both optimistic and realistic and still sell it to a general public you know yeah, I mean, Mars is not the engineering. I mean, Mars, is, the moon was simply an engineering problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Mars is a whole different bucket of wax there. And I think that is, I think that gets lost somehow. There's so many other variables you have to look at. There are so many other things you have to look at. And I'm not just talking about, about spacecraft and technology. I'm talking about can the human deal with all of this too? And we haven't really learned that. And how to keep the human safe and alive by the time he gets to Mars and getting that individual back. A lot of these scenarios, which I kind of laugh at, have the human being staying on Mars and 
that's it. That's sort of these one-way trip type scenarios, which I think are, are just absolutely- Mars pioneers. Yeah, which I, think are, which I think is absolutely ludicrous because the idea of going to Mars is to go ahead, find out what secrets it has, and bring those secrets back for study. But not only that, have those fellow human beings that have made that ultimate trip come back and tell us about it. And, I mean, that's why, you know, anytime Alan Bean or Buzz Aldrin or any of these guys make an appearance on stage to talk about Apollo, it's standing room only. Mm -hmm. And and, and yeah, that's well, just that's it. Nothing is so powerful as the human word. Thank you. Thank you. And and that might be that might be the best punctuation mark to go ahead and end this conversation with. So again, this is we're talking about testing ourselves again, trying to go ahead and relearn interplanetary travel, a talent that we humans haven't done in a long time. We've sent our robots out, believe me. And they've done some grand work. But now it's time to stop going around in circles ourselves. And I think it's time to go for another walk. So on that happy note, I think we'll go ahead and put a punctuation mark on this program for tonight. I want to thank Cassie Tamanini for joining me tonight. Cassie, thanks a whole bunch. Thank you. And uh, thank you for sending me that uh, New Space Journal because I think I read the entire issue today so all of you out there you should look that up and read lots of stuff because like i said the whole i think the whole issue is actually on the topic we were just talking about and you can learn a lot more about the engineering and the details of what go into it by reading those so thank you so much gene for sending that to me okay, no problem I'll, I'll see if i can get get that in the show notes and Kat Robeson, thank you so much again for joining us. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, I know you, you've been a, 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 a real busy individual of late. So uh, you taking the time out to be here with us tonight. I really do appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. It's always my pleasure. I love to, to discuss and dream and imagine with you two. And since I'm currently knee deep in space policy for, for my PhD, it's, it's kind of uh, – it's nice to come out for air, even though the air is tinged with my work still. <laughs> <laughs> There's the problem with doing what you love. <laughs> Amen. But, uh, Amen. It's, and uh, it's, just, it's really good to, to get everyone else's perspective on it, especially when you kind of dive down the, deep into the nitty gritty. It's nice to come up and kind of take a view, a view from the outside. One day, of you, I hope a lot of people can can see by maybe one day we will be able to travel to the moon as tourists, and that would make me really happy. Probably not in my lifetime, but maybe one day in the next generations. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And a uh, big shout out to both Mr. Mark Ratterman again uh, and the first robotics team that you are leading. Bravo for you, sir! Congratulations. Yeah. Great job in Orlando, and looking forward to the next step with you guys. And uh, shout out to uh, Mr. Sawyer Rosenstein. We'll see you next week, bud. Hang in there. With that, I'm going to go ahead and hang the show up. Again, thanks, everybody out there, for listening to Talking Space. Good night, everyone.